In case you missed this, on Sunday night, the Chicago Sky won its first ever WNBA championship by upending the Phoenix Mercury. It was a tremendous season for the league, and when the game was over, the giddy Sky players took any and all questions. Phoenix's players, however, left without commenting. And it was truly pathetic, and it really leaves a scar on an otherwise great run for the team. We in the media don't always have it easy. Writing on deadline is hard. Dealing with COVID restrictions has been brutal. We work late, often for little pay. The very least we can expect from those whose exploits we cover, often gloriously, is a courtesy to appear and address us in the darker times. Shame on the Phoenix Mercury. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writer with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Kavitha Davidson, a writer for The Athletic who covers the intersection of sports and social issues and who's the co-author of the new book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Fan. This is episode number 230. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, I left for college and nobody here has ever heard of you. All right, Kavitha, I felt very, very old last night researching you, and here's why. I like to find the the oldest clip available about a person. Since we're doing this over Zoom, I can show you. I found this article from the uh, April 12th, 1992 New York Daily News called Forever Young. Oh my Have God. you seen this clip? <laughs> I haven't seen that in years, but yeah, you really did your research, Jeff, man. So... <laughs> Do you remember being in preschool and Mrs. Weiss reading to you the missing necklace, little Kavitha at age three? Does this ring a bell to you? It does ring a bell. Um, the part of that story, this is obnoxious, that um, that was not told was that one of my privileges in nursery school was being able to read to the other kids because I was reading at a very advanced age, which is why they, I think, chose me for that story. But So do you, do you feel like they ignored your talents? You feel like they they were intentionally slighting you and not recognizing the genius. Not even not even a little bit, man. I actually honestly I haven't seen that clip in in years, and I forgot that that existed for a while. So thank you for for bringing up those memories. That's what I'm here <laughs> for. Um, wait, you mentioned something when we were just chatting, and I want to go to it. I didn't even see it going this way. You mentioned the words uh, the name Trevor Bauer, mm. right? You've kind of spent your career covering sports and how it relates to sort of different issues off the fields and off the courts. Right. And Trevor Bowers is really, I live out here in, in Southern California. This really kind of fascinating, gross, disturbing topic. How are we supposed to cover this? Like, what are we supposed to do with this thing? I mean, it's a good question, right? And I think that it's not, it's something that we grapple with whenever something like this happens, whenever a, an athlete is accused of horrible things like Trevor Bauer is, um, the first step is having the conversation with each other about how we should cover these things. I think that more so than in the past, we are talking about what is the proper language to use? How do we, you know, not victim blame or slut shame or anything like that? Um, you know, what is the meaning of consent? How does consent, um, how is consent given and how is consent able to be revoked? 
I think it's also it, it matters whether you're a reporter or a columnist or a fan blogger, right? Like the the perspectives all deserve to be all those perspectives deserve to be covered, but they they will be covered in different ways. So I think it, it's it's very difficult. I mean, I, I I do understand it, and as someone who is a sexual assault survivor myself and has spent a lot of my career covering sexual assault in in sports, it can also be exhausting, and you can also it can also feel like you're saying the same thing every time something like this happens. I will say I've seen so much. I don't know if growth is is the word, but I've seen so much, I guess, progress in how we have covered these things. I don't think that we cover Trevor Bauer this way or the way that I've mostly seen him being covered five years ago or 10 years ago. I don't think Major League Baseball continues to extend his indefinite suspension five or 10 years ago. Right. So I do think that we've come to a place um, which is better than where we were before. But you never really quite know exactly what the right way is to go about these things. Well, I just want to say I was covering baseball in the early 2000s. If it's then he's still pitching. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. And I don't think that any of us I think that we're you know, we suspect that Major League Baseball will come down with a suspension at some point um, or at least a decision. I don't know if he sees a Dodgers uniform ever again. And I, I don't want to be that team that takes the chance on picking him up if the Dodgers do have to cut him or, or if he does get suspended. Um, that's not the case five years ago. It's definitely not the case 10 years ago. And I'm a, I'm a Yankees fan and a role Chapman is kind of uh, the poster boy for, for how that wasn't the case not too long ago. When something like this comes along, and obviously we have this sort of thing that we at least say in this country, um, innocent until proven guilty. Is it hard to look at Trevor Bauer and as a journalist, be able to judge him through the prism of innocent until proven guilty? Um, I think it's hard to know what innocent until proven guilty actually should mean. I think that means in a court of law. I think that means um, not necessarily in the court of public opinion. Um, I think that every fan takes every fan separate from a journalist will take the police report, what they've read about, what they've heard as accusations and deem whether they're credible. I also think that as journalists, we have to be able to kind of weed out bullshit. Am I allowed to curse? Yes, <laughs> um, very much so. It's <laughs> we have to be able to weed out bullshit. And a lot of the a lot of the time, defense attorneys and representatives traffic and bullshit. Right. And I think that we've seen that a lot with the Trevor Bauer case, especially in the public messaging. At the same time, there is always a default for the public, especially for the public around a famous man and a public figure to rush to his defense when he is accused of things, especially when he's accused of gendered violence and violence against women. And I think that the default, my my co-author in my book, Jessica Luther, said this recently, and she said this very well, I think in the L.A. Times, actually. She said, basically, you know, the the initial instinct for most people is to garner support and to come up with excuses for the man who has been accused of something without thinking of the woman who is doing the accusing and what that means to her, what the detriment is there. You know, I think that we are very quick to assume that this like operational like mythical woman is trying to take advantage of a rich, famous man, and that that's easier for us to understand than the horrible things that he's been accused of. I agree with you. I don't think that's really happened with Trevor Bauer. And my theory for that is, is because he's kind of an asshole. 
Right. No, I mean, I think that that's absolutely true. I think that if he had been a more likable person before all of this had happened, I mean, first of all, that but that also doesn't occur in a vacuum. Right. Like Trevor Bauer has had not only is he an asshole, but he has had instances where you could see kind of there's smoke or there's fire about him harassing women online or harassing female journalists and um, and things like that. So but I, I do agree with you. I think that if he, if he were a more likable figure, there would be much more support among Dodgers fans for him. In a way, that's an indictment of us all because um, we'll stand up for any guy who's accused of raping someone. We'll show up with signs if it's our favorite hero saying free so-and-so. But, you know, in this case, he's kind of a dick. So we'll we'll back off just because we don't like him personally. Like, that's actually more pathetic if you think about it. Right. Well, I mean, it kind of shows you where the standards are. Right. And and that, I mean. Listen, they're very low, but also fandom is by its nature irrational. Like our entire book is about the moral and ethical dilemmas of fandom and how irrational they are and how irrational our fandom is. But they're still a part of who we are and they're a part of our identity. And that's why it's so difficult sometimes to separate our fandom from what we know logically in our brains to be true. So if you go through your bio, you see a lot of covers the intersection of blank. Right. Covers the intersection. And that's a very sort of common thing to say these days about people, which I'm not saying isn't true, but covers the intersection of sports and blank. Mm -hmm. And you said, um, you know, the first step is having the conversation, figuring out the right language to use, use the term victim shaming, which 100 percent. I agree with everything you just said. I feel like there's a huge percentage of this population that is just like, leave me the fuck alone. I just want to fucking enjoy my Brewers game. And I want to sit back and I just want to think about how many home runs Otani has. And please just shut the fuck up and stop telling me this stuff. Do you run into that a lot? I do. And I understand it completely. And let me tell you, like, I just took a staycation where I deleted Twitter and Slack from my phone because I didn't want to hear about any of this shit either. Like I didn't, you know, between Cosby and Bauer and Cuomo, me being in New York, like I really just wanted to eat a bunch of food and drink a lot of liquor and 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 go to the pool like that. That was all I wanted to do for a week and watch baseball. Um, and I did. So I completely get it. And I would say to those fans, like, I think one of the things that Jessica and I learned in, in the course of writing our book is to not only be be kinder to ourselves, but to be kinder to other fans who might not feel the same way about these dilemmas or these sports or these issues. Also to be, you know, if you are somebody who just wants to stick to sports, to be kinder to people who do feel these these dilemmas. And I would say to those fans who don't want to hear about this stuff, respectfully, don't read my writing. Um, more often than not, it's going to cover something that you probably don't want to hear about. But it is important that it gets covered. And the fact of the matter is, for the first, like, 60 years of modern sports journalism, we didn't cover this kind of stuff. Right. Um, and that's how, you know, that's how an Omar Vizquel situation ends up coming to light 20 years after the fact. It is also just fundamentally impossible for a lot of us to purely enjoy sports without thinking about this other stuff. And I wish that that weren't the case. I really do. Um, and again, I'm not saying that that should be the case for everybody. And I'm not saying that that is the case for everybody. But there are enough of us for whom, you know, we can't watch a Roldis Chapman pitch and not think about you know, what he's been accused of or the circumstances under which the Yankees actually got him and then got the draft pick that became uh, Glaber Torres. You know, there there are so many ways in which we all experience fandom in very, very diverse ways. And I think that for the majority of our history of sports media and sports journalism, 
a singular perspective has been presented and has been brought forth. And, you know, the whole impetus for writing this book, the whole impetus for so much work that I think a lot of women and people of color in this space do is that we've never felt that 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 sports media has completely been for us or that sports haven't always completely been for us. And we love them anyway. Right. Um, So I think that that's why we try to bring these differing perspectives. And hopefully it makes everyone it makes everyone better when we have more than one voice in the room. Wait, so when you're when you're growing up, you're obviously a diehard, grow up a diehard sports fan and you're growing up and you love sports and you go to Columbia and you have these different internships and blah, blah, blah. You're you're you have this career that you're shooting for. Are you aware at the time? So you're 17 year old Kavitha, you're 22 year old Kavitha. Are you aware that the majority of writers are sort of white men and are you aware that it skewers a perspective or do you only kind of realize that later on when you enter the profession? I honestly don't think I ever thought about it. Like when I, and I'll tell you this, like when I, when I wanted, when I first wanted to be a sports writer, I was in high school. I wanted to be a Yankees beat writer for like the New York daily news. You know, you know, I wanted to be on the ground and in the hotel room and all that and just interviewing players. And I, I it never occurred to me that the, the people I grew up reading were all white men um, and the people that I grew up watching on the sports reporters, except for John Saunders. Um, you know, there's a handful of people like obviously like Bryant Gumbel. Um, but for the most part, it, I, but I don't think it ever really occurred to me, but it absolutely if you think about it, it, like if you think about it retrospectively, it absolutely skewed the perspectives that I was exposed to. I never thought about Chuck Knobloch being a domestic abuser. That was also not really a thing that was ever covered. Um, I never thought about why Derek Jeter was never like why Derek Jeter's race was never an issue. And it was partly, you know, his wishes and that that was how he presented himself. But like these weren't things that ever really occurred to me, you know, when you're when you're seven or eight or 10 or whatever. You know, I took a class uh, between my freshman and sophomore years at Columbia at the graduate school that I had to petition to take called the Socio-Historical Foundations of American Sport. And that was the first time I learned about the intersections of American history and sociology and social movements and sports. And I'd never thought about that intersection until that point. Probably somewhere in the back of my mind, it had like latently occurred to me, but it was never explicitly put forward to me that way until I took this class. And then I wrote about Kurt Flood and, you know, getting rid of the reserve clause and free agency. And then at the same time that I was learning about, you know, the labor tradition in America in my history classes, and it all kind of just it all kind of snapped together for me that there was that there is an intersection here that you can't separate them um, and that sometimes sports can actually be a really great way to learn about these things that academically a lot of our population is not exposed to. Is it OK if there's some Dodger fan, just as an example, who's like, I just want to see Trevor Bauer pitch. I don't care about anything, but I just want I just want to see him pitch. I just want the Dodgers to win. He's a really good pitcher. I don't give a shit about anything else. I'm, I'm going to try really hard not to judge that fan because I do understand where that impetus comes from. I also think that that fan might not have a lot of people in their lives who have gone through something like what Trevor Bauer is accused of doing. And that's where I think the difficulty lies. I think that if you if you like for me reading that police report, there were specific instances in that police report that reminded me almost exactly of what I went through. And not every not every assault is the same. Not every case is the same or whatever. Um, This is also one of the reasons that I haven't written about this, frankly, because I don't I, I try really hard to be objective when I cover sexual assault in sports. And I think that this is one case in which I, I can't. But 
I, I understand where that fan is coming from. I also know that when like I have friends who have absolutely said the same thing about about a role as Chapman, about Domingo Herman. And when they talk to me, you know, they, and they realize like my history or how I might feel about that, it, it does kind of change their perspective whether or not it changes their perspective wholly to not wanting to see that guy pitch is another story. But, you know, I, I understand it. It's human nature. And you just want to see, you know, you just want to see your team win at the end of the day. One of the, the chapters in our book is decidedly about um, rooting for your team when there's a guy on it accused of doing something. And when I interviewed a Mets fan, her first favorite player was Jose Reyes. And when they re-signed him after what he was accused of doing, she literally took her Jose Reyes jersey and she she brought it to goodwill um, and she still went to games and she still loves her team. And, and, you know, she still was at city field cheering them on. And every time Jose Reyes would come up to bat, she would sit down in her seat. And that was her little form of, of protest to herself. I feel like the 12th takeaway from that point you just made is you can go to goodwill and get really cheap jerseys. <laughs> I think that that might actually be a thing, but yeah, if you want, if you want some jerseys of some guys who've been accused of some stuff, right. maybe try, try to hit up a goodwill. I am. Uh, I'm currently going through the absolute, absolute hell of writing a book, and uh, I'm miserable. You have a book you've alluded to. You wrote it with Jessica Luther, uh, "Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back," and I was thinking about something I would never fucking do in my life, which is write a book with somebody else. Like, <laughs> I can't. I can't even imagine writing a book with somebody else because it's hard enough writing a book on your own and hating yourself and hating what you write. I know this isn't a question you probably have ever asked or maybe not often, like writing a book with someone else, good or bad, recommended or highly discouraged. So we have actually been asked this. And here's the interesting thing. Um, Jessica's really used to writing with a partner and she's extremely good at it. Jessica has a regular partner um, that she she reported the Baylor. She broke the Baylor story with, for example, um, his name is Dan Solomon. She's written with John Wertheim over at, at Sports Illustrated. Jessica's ext- an extremely good writing partner. And when you write in a partnership, both people have their own respective strengths and your, your skills and your strengths kind of complement each other. With a book I've never written with another person. So this was a really interesting kind of undertaking for me. And everything that you said, I mean, first of all, like the self-doubt never goes away. You hate everything you fucking write. You hate everything that's on the page. Um, And it's even worse when you are accountable to another person, right? Like, listen, like I have always missed deadlines, like, you know, and you feel feel shitty about it when there's another person who's counting on you. At the same time, the support there is really important. Um, And just having somebody to remind you that um, that there is a reason you are writing this together and that there is a reason you found each other and there's a reason you have a book deal together and all of that like that, that like mentally and emotionally, it was was super, super important with this book in particular, though. I mean, I can't compare this again to any other co-writing experience because I have I haven't had one. But what we did was, you know, we came up with a list of potential chapters um, and topics, and we just divided them up between the two of us. So we didn't we didn't co-write each chapter. We each wrote a chapter and then we edited each other's stuff before we submitted them to our publisher. And it was actually given the overlap of what Jessica and I tend to cover. You'd think it would have been more difficult to divide those chapters, but it happened super organically. It was like it was really easy. 
to do. There were some chapters that were obvious, like Jessica in doing her PhD has studied indigenous people and racist imagery. So she did the racist mascots chapter. I have a business a business reporting background from my time at Bloomberg. So I did all of the kind of stadium financing and baseball free market stuff. And the process of having each standalone chapter that you worked on on your own, and then you sent it to the other person to edit, like that collaborative process was really great. Um, and also kind of takes a little bit of the edge off because then you're not directly sending it to your publisher. You have a little bit of a buffer there too, um, which, which has some kind of like really positive psychic effect there. And on top of that, I'll say, you know, Jessica and I can be extremely different types of writers. Um, she comes from a very academic background. But she also does these, you know, very in-depth and in investigative reports. My Most of my experience um, in professional sports writing has been column writing and analysis. I think that there was a fear that our styles wouldn't mesh particularly well. But if you read the chapters, you can't actually tell really who wrote what, at least by the tone or the voice. There's something about it, again, organically, I think that our our writing just came together really well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I understand where you're coming from. Writing a book is really fucking hard. <laughs> um, and it just, it's an emotional toll that it takes out of you for sure. But in this case, I don't, I would never have been able to write this book without Jessica. If you're writing different chapters and then you're putting it all together, do you have to sort of... Uh smooth it out toward the end so it segues into the next chapter or is it just a jump? Yeah, so a little bit. I mean, I we we didn't really have that in mind when we were writing, um, but like we got all the chapters done. We didn't have the order of the chapters set until like one of the last steps. Um, and by the way, our book was set to be sent to the printer about a week after Rudy Gobert ended up testing positive for COVID and all of sports shut down. So that was a whole other, publishing a book in the middle of a pandemic is also a whole other experience that we had. Um, but yeah, so after we finished all of our chapters, we sat down with our publisher and we figured out what kind of order of the chapters made sense if there needed to be more transitions from them. And then also because we, you know, we were published by the University of Texas Press, which is an academic publisher, we had to go through peer review, which is not something that trade publications usually have to go through. So a committee of academics at UT reviewed our manuscript and gave us very frank and honest critique. And we we, re we rearranged some chapters because of that. We actually changed the title of our book because of it. Um, it was originally how to love sports when they don't love you back. And we realized that we didn't have a ton of solutions, frankly, because not every fan experiences these things in a monolith. So we changed it to loving sports to describe the experience. We have some recommendations in there, but it was not a how-to book. And in the course of getting the peer review comments back, we rearranged some of the chapters and we did smooth some of the transitions a little bit more um, so that they made sense. But we didn't go in, we didn't go into any chapter writing it with that in mind. Wait, I just want to say, so I um I teach adjunct at a, at a university near here and uh, just the term peer review <laughs> made me almost turn to the garbage pan. And Dia, I saw you recoil a bit. Oh sure. my God. That, were you like, are you fucking kidding me? Like what? No. Or were you like, oh no, that sounds great. I would love to have my work peer reviewed. I mean, I, I didn't really see a choice. <laughs> No, I mean, it's absolutely daunting. It is absolutely daunting. And, um, you know, I, I I mean, I'm very grateful for it. We got great comments. It definitely made the book stronger. Um, but it is extremely intimidating, especially when you're like, like, I didn't graduate college. You know what I mean? So like to have a group of career academics reviewing my work alongside Jessica, who's got a master's and is in the process of getting a PhD was was extremely intimidating. But again, made the made the book better for that. So time out. 
You did not graduate college. I did not graduate college. Yeah. Okay. Total left turn here. How did that happen? So I was assaulted my freshman year of college um, and I stayed in school until the end of my sophomore year and probably was not the best call. I was sports editor my sophomore year, which was the main thing that was driving me, frankly. Depression severely set in, PTSD severely set in. Um, I've been very open and frank about this. I attempted suicide on my life in 2009. I went through an inpatient program um, and I went through pretty intensive therapy. I maintained a bunch of jobs and internships, but like I took medical leave from Columbia knowing that I wasn't getting the most out of my education and I wasn't putting the most into it. And you're talking about someone like I was a math and science geek at a, at a specialized science high school in New York. Like I'm, I'm a career, I was a career student. Like that was a thing that I did and my entire life got derailed. So I took some time off. I took a couple of years off. I kept taking classes. Um, part-time at Columbia, but I, I, I wasn't doing the full set and I was working as well. Um, and by the time it got, I, I got back into a good mental place and my, my psychiatrist thought it was a good idea for me to go back to school. I got an internship at the Huffington Post that ended up being directly on Ariana Huffington's team. And I just didn't think I could give up that opportunity and that school would always be there, but the internship would not. So I took the internship And then it ended up leading to me working in the newsroom. And then it ended up leading to me working at Bloomberg. And then, you know, like, so everything kind of took off from there and I never went back. And now I it's 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 really interesting. Like I I speak at Columbia Journalism School's um, sports sports writing class every year because, you know, friends of mine teach that class and, and everything. And I always feel like a little bit of a fraud because I'm like, these kids are paying a quarter of a million dollars for a grad degree and, and I'm lecturing them as a, as a college dropout here. <laughs> uh, students, we have Kavitha Davidson here. Uh, Kavitha, <laughs> would you like to introduce yourself? First of all, I'd like to say fuck college. It's bullshit. <laughs> you don't need it. So be like me. Drop out. I listen, man. I here's the thing. I loved college. And I every time I go back to campus, like I feel such a such an identity with that place. Also, because I went to middle school like three blocks away. You know, my mom worked at the med school. So like like we are a very Columbia family. My sister went to Barnard and I I love college. Like I I wish I could afford to go back and stop working for a couple of years because I think I really only have a year's worth of credits left. I did a bunch of like college classes when I was in like high school and everything like that. But no, I mean, college is not a waste of money. Journalism school might be. <laughs> um, we can have that debate. But um, no, but I, I loved college. Um, I'm lucky that I've been able to forge a career without having that degree. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my good friend, world famous New York Times bestselling author, Michael Lewis. So, Michael. Tell me, what was it like meeting Sandra Bullock when she started the movie The Blind Side, based on your amazing book? Um, Jeff, you know that's a different Michael Lewis, right? I'm Michael J. Lewis, writer and blogger and author of zero New York Times bestsellers. I've never met Sandra Bullock, though I did love her in The Net. What kind of food did Brad pity when he filmed your book Moneyball? I have no idea. I didn't meet him and wasn't on the set. I didn't write that book. Tell me how cool it is being married to former MTV VJ Tabitha Sword. Uh, my wife's name is Shelly. When you hit the bestseller for the first- Listen, you idiot, I'm not that Michael Lewis. I'm just another writer with his name, living perpetually in his enormous shadow, okay? 
I don't want to talk about him anymore. All I want to do is talk about Royal Retro's amazing selection of sports throwback merchandise. I want to talk about the chance to get a Kurt Warner Amsterdam Admirals World League jersey. And I want to talk about getting a Gordie Howe Houston Arrows WHA jersey on RoyalRetros.com. I want to talk about their collection of incredible football and baseball jerseys, too, from every league you can imagine. I don't want to talk about that other Michael Lewis, damn it. Can you get me Steve Carell's autograph? I'm going to ask you a question. I hope you're okay with it. You mentioned that you were assaulted and you mentioned the sort of aftermath of that. And I feel like when we talk about stories like Trevor Bauer or like Chapman or like Jose Reyes, et cetera, et cetera, generally the topics are fairly surface and we don't actually think that much about what it ends up doing to the people involved. I'm not talking about the athletes. I'm talking to generally the women involved in these things. I'm sure there are men out there who are like, hey, you just move on. You know, you just man up and you just tough it up and you just move on. Like, what is it about having an experience like that that makes it so difficult to, quote unquote, move on? Well, I will also say that there are certainly women out there who think that as well. And there are men who have been assaulted and there are women out there who think that who either have been assaulted and they think that because they either were capable of moving on almost immediately or because that was their coping mechanism was just to shut everything off. And and and, you know, the way that they survived was was to do it that way and power to them. You know, that's we all cope in, in extremely different ways. I think what is what is really difficult about something like this is unless it's a very clear cut, like very clear cut case of rape or sexual assault, you always doubt what you could have done differently, what role you played in that. And then when you hear a lot of people rushing to famous men's mostly defense, it kind of brings up all of those doubts that you had in yourself. And and you you think about, you know, if, if I were to have a conversation with this random dude online who is defending Trevor Bauer about what happened to me, what's his attack going to be about what happened to me? Right. Um, and and that that's really hard. And I remember we did an episode of, of my previous show, The Lead, with a woman who was an intern at, um, at NYCFC who accused David Villa of sexual harassment. And David Villa ended up going on to, you know, to stay on the team and to own and have an ownership stake in another team and all of that. And, and she said something that I think a lot of survivors and victims feel and have said to me before, which is every time I see him being celebrated on TV, it, 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 it re-traumatizes me. It, it makes me feel like what happened to me didn't matter at all, that it's the, uh, that it happened to me in a vacuum and that it only affected me. And that made her, and she said that made me feel weak and that made me feel small and insignificant. And I think that's one of the things that's really difficult. But even if you're not talking about this happened, like the person who, who did what he did to me was not famous. No one will ever know his name. Um, no charges were brought or anything like that. But I think what's so difficult is you think that, you either don't realize at the time exactly what's happened. It it takes a while to process. Like for and for me, you know, like I said, like I stayed in school for the next two years. Basically, this happened November of my freshman year, um, and I took medical leave after my sophomore year. So I think it takes a while for you to process what exactly has happened, what that means to you, and also how that's actually going to affect you. Then there's actual like brain chemistry that happens, right? Like it actually alters the way that your brain processes things. Um, and that can sometimes be latent as well. So it's a really difficult, um, it's a really difficult cycle. And then after all of that is processed, you think, well, 
I allowed this to derail my life. I allowed this to make me drop out of school. I allowed this to, you know, I had all of these big plans and I had all of this ambition and I'd achieved everything up until this point. And this one thing completely derailed all of that. And then that's when like the cycle of self-doubt starts to kick in and you, you kick yourself for, for all of that. So there's a lot of things at play um, that, that are really hard, that are really hard to explain until you like kind of get into them. Um, and frankly, I think everyone should be in therapy, whether something tra- traumatic has happened to them or not. But I, I think it does give you, it equips you more with the language to be able to understand um, how people process different kinds of trauma and, and why that why that isn't so easy just to snap your fingers and get over. I just want to say, and I'm, I'm not comparing this to what you went through at all. When I was a, uh, I was a student at the University of Delaware freshman year, I went to work at the campus uh, radio station downstairs from the newspaper. And they had an adult who was the, uh, a guy who was like the station engineer. And I used to walk down there and the guy would always compliment my legs. And then he started like pinching my legs when I would go down there. And I just remember at the time, like you, you, I would laugh at all. You try to laugh it off and be like, Oh, Hey, 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 you know, and it got to the point where I just didn't fucking want to go to the radio station. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, why am I not going to the radio station? And then when I found out he died years later, I got really emotional. And you just like, shit can definitely mess with you in ways that you, at the time, you're so young and so kind of naive to the world and what's going on around you. And then one day you're like, holy shit, like that, that really kind of messed with me, you know? Well, and that's a, that's a really good example. And I'm sorry that, you know, that happened, but, you know, and I, I don't want to put labels on what other people have gone through if they haven't put them. So if, you know, you could call that harassment, you could call that assault, you could call that whatever you wanted to call it, but either way it made you uncomfortable and it was inappropriate. Um, And it clear, like, even if at the time you didn't process that as being something wrong that was happening to you, it, made you not want to go back to the radio station. Right. I have a, and, and this is also, you know, we never, we don't have this conversation enough when it comes to men as well. I have a friend who is very, very burly dude from Coney Island. He's a bartender. If you met him, he's the Italian Joey Gallo fan at Yankee stadium, basically. Um, and he is not physically threatened by most people. He's extremely strong and all of that, but he's a bartender. And he will tell me that the number of drunk women who just touch him all the time, you know, he'll, he'll make the the joke about, well, if she's hot, you know, I don't really care about it, but he's still also trying to do his job and it does make him uncomfortable, especially the level to which it happens. And he can't just like physically remove a woman from his body because he's so big. So that's another form of harassment and assault that, that, that people go through, that men go through. And again, we don't talk about that stuff enough. And it doesn't have to be something to the level of what I went through or what the woman who was accusing Trevor Bauer, um, the two women who are accusing Trevor Bauer have, have gone through to for it to make you uncomfortable and for it to be inappropriate. Um, and I think that the more we have these conversations, the more space we give men to also have those conversations about their own experiences. I have a piece you wrote in front of me. This is for The Athletic from uh, May Uh, New Yorkers and the Healing Power of Madison Square Garden. I really love this piece. And he wrote, um, it was always going to be bigger than basketball, the slow return to normalcy, the reclaiming of the city, uh, the endemic collectivism and inherently social nature of New Yorkers, the unmitigated instinct to yell at the top of your lungs. You felt it all once in every moment in and around Madison Square Garden on Sunday night. But there's nothing normal about the Knicks being in the playoffs. Pandemic be damned. This is a fan base waiting for an excuse, any excuse to erupt. This is a fan base that craves validation for decades of unrewarded loyalty. This is a fan base that long ago accepted that the people who run and profit off this team probably don't care about as much as we do. 
man, but it's ours. It felt like ours once again on Sunday, and it'll feel like ours all over again Wednesday. We hope the Knicks find an answer for Trey Young, blah, blah, blah. It's a really impassioned piece. It's beautifully written. I love everything about it, but I have a good topic for you. Okay. All right. I am older than you, and I feel like I come from an era where I still cringe a little bit at sports journalists wearing their fandom. And you were pretty, pretty open about it in your writing. You know, you're a Yankee fan and you're a Knicks fan and you're a Giants fan. I'm willing to admit everyone has different approaches. So I'm not actually saying I'm right. I think where I come from is if you then have to write about fill in the blank Nick doing something shitty. It's like, yeah, I can do it fairly. But the perception would be, yeah, but she's a Nick fan, blah, 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 blah. Tell me why I'm wrong. I think that's totally fair. And that is actually absolutely something that I struggle with a lot. And like I said, it's something that I struggle with when I cover athletes who are accused of sexual assault because of my own personal experience there. I frankly don't think there is such a thing as purely objective journalism, no matter what type of journalism you're doing. I think that we all come from our own perspectives. We all have our own our own ways that literally our brain in, interprets data, right? And the most that we can do, I think, is to acknowledge our inherent biases and then try to circumvent them when we when we report. So if I'm writing a column and, there, and this is also the distinction between reporting and column writing, right? Like that, that Nick's piece, the, the most recent piece I wrote about Andrew Velasquez and um, the unseen Yankee fan is, a, is decidedly a column. And it's, it comes from a personal place. I use the first person a lot in it. But if I'm writing a reported piece about a Nick or about a Yankee, that's when you put the journalist hat on, you take off the columnist hat, you take off the fan hat and you put the journalism, the reporter hat on. Um, I mean, I will also point to the fact that like I, so one of the interesting things about writing this book was so many of these dilemmas are things that Jessica and I um, experience ourselves as fans, but we don't, we didn't insert ourselves into this book at all. Um, We interviewed fans who either, like either we identified with what they said or they brought a completely different perspective of their own experiences here. There's a a chapter in there that is called loving your team when you hate your owner. So obviously I interviewed other Knicks fans um, and Mets fans and um, Clippers fans under Sterling and Washington football fans. Um, And I do think that it is possible to turn that side of your brain off, especially if you are if you are if you have the self-awareness that every journalist should have about um, about where the fandom comes from and kind of where those things go wrong. Right. So if you are able to identify what you are, what most people in your fan base are going to say, then you can think of what the pushback should be there before it's even said. Right. When Derek Jeter announced his retirement, I wrote two columns around Derek Jeter's retirement. I wrote the column, which was the very purple. Kavitha is a Yankee fan. This is what Derek Jeter meant to me into the city column um, after I attended his last game and cried and all of that. The day that he announced his retirement, though, I wrote the column. Now can the Yankees get a shortstop with range? And let me tell you, other Yankee fans were not happy about that. And a bunch of them said, I'm sure the Mets would love to have you. And I do think that it is possible to turn that emotional side of yourself off. But to be aware of that, I think, is really important to to coming up with the questions and the pushback that do make good journalism. Um, when I'm reporting decidedly and not writing a column, I don't bring any of my fandom in here. But none of us would be in this industry if we hadn't been fans. So I think that denying that part of us is a little bit futile. Let's say Julius Randall is accused of blank, right? I don't want to put anything on Julius Randall, but let's sure. say Julius Randall is accused well, of Well, Derek blank. Rose. Sure. And we know you are a Knicks fan. 
I'm not saying you wouldn't report it fairly at all. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, does that change the perception of the reader to write, looking for the holes in your coverage, knowing that you're a Nick fan? Oh, he's going. So why is she going easy on Julius Randall when she was so hard on Trevor Bauer? Well, I mean, I think that it absolutely opens yourself up to that. I think that, I mean, if you ask Lindsay Adler, who was our Yankees beat writer at The Athletic, who grew up in San Francisco and is just not a Yankees fan, a lot of people assume that just that when you cover a team, you are a fan of that team anyway. So I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about what journalists do to begin with. Um, I think that the way that you combat that is to not have holes in your reporting. Don't go easy on Julius Randall. You know, I don't think that means you go extra hard on him in order to combat that perception, but if you are fair in your reporting and if, if, if your reporting is not, if there aren't holes in there and there aren't things for people to criticize, then, then they can't really, you know, they can't, they can't accuse you of being biased in that way. I will also say that people are going to accuse you of being biased, no matter what you write and what you cover, (laughs) which is an unfortunate just aspect of, of today's media and, and social media landscape. But I, I mean, I do, I do recognize that that will be something, you know, whenever I write about the Yankees, if I do so in an objective way, most likely people will, will point to the fact that I have a Yankees tattoo and I, I am a huge you know Yankees fan and all of that. Um, at the same time, you know, I was one of the only people covering while I was working at Bloomberg stadium subsidies that Mike Bloomberg approved for the Yankees, which hadn't been covered to that point. Right. So I think that you can also look at somebody's body of work and and see, well, Sheer, he is a fan of this team, but has also covered this extremely fairly to the detriment of the rest of your fan base sometimes. I actually don't know how you still care. See, that was the thing that did it to me. I when I got to Sports Illustrated, I grew up a diehard Jet fan and a Met mm-hmm. fan and all the New York stuff. And then I just kind of got I feel like I saw the little guy behind the curtain. You see how like, the sausage is made for sure. Yeah. hundred percent. And I was like, yeah, I don't really, it's, it's like the Seinfeld line. Truly. It's just laundry to me. How do you still care? I'm actually being serious. How do you still care? No, listen, this is something I'm asked a lot and it's something that I talk about a lot. So the way that I answer this usually is one, I don't think that there is such a thing as watching sports purely for pleasure anymore for me, which sounds really sad. But what I mean by that is one, just from a from a work perspective, I'm never really turning off all of my work brain. If I'm watching a game, absolutely, I'm getting pleasure out of it. But I'm also thinking about what are the storylines here? What are the angles, right? Like, what, what could I be writing about off of this? Should I be writing something off of this? That kind of thing. And then to your point of seeing how the sausage is made. Now, I had an internship when I was um, when I was on break from from college at the Staten Island Yankees. And if you want to talk about knowing how the sausage is made, you work for a front office. So, and a front office of the team, of a team affiliated with the team that you love. Um, I will, like, it is it is very difficult to deal with that. And I, I am extremely jaded. I'm extremely cynical. But I think that it lends, for me personally, it lends me a different dimension to my fandom where I don't like, like, absolutely. I will have this immediate, like emotional reaction to things. And the entire book is about how irrational that is because I spend my entire career you know, knocking down all of these things that we get irrationally excited about. But at the same time, I will have that immediate reaction. And then I'll step back and I'll think, well, okay, wait a minute, you know, which PR department crafted this statement that got me super excited? Or, you know, when Garrett Cole, when when someone found the, the sign of Garrett Cole from when he was 11 years old at a World Series game saying like, 
Yankee now and forever or whatever it said, like that was a heartwarming moment and I'm a sucker and that shit worked on me totally. But now I'm also like, this is a very keenly crafted narrative also that the Yankees PR is putting out there. It doesn't make it any less genuine. Um, So I don't know if there is a way for me to turn that side of it off, but I still, man, it's, it's, it's totally irrational. I still do get pleasure out of watching sports, out of watching my teams in particular, but out of watching all sports. Like Jessica and I are talking about like one of the chapters in the book is about how deeply problematic on an like international global corruption scale the Olympics are, right? Like, I mean, we we just had um, we just had a woman defect and and you know seek a humanitarian visa in Poland uh, because they were trying to force her to go back to um, to her country. Um, the fact of the matter is the Olympics actually plan for this every four years. They have a committee um, that just in case there are defectors because this happens so often. So all of that to say there are a lot of problems with the Olympics and we still deeply love watching them. <laughs> and that yeah. is the that is the dilemma. That is the irrationality there. Um, and I don't know how to turn that off. I will also say that I I think that it diminishes a little bit every year. And the more that you learn and, you know, the more that. It's especially as a woman and a woman of color, it is very difficult to be a fan. Even if you didn't cover this stuff, it is just difficult to be a fan, like constantly being knocked down. Um, So it does get harder every year. And it especially gets harder for me with American football, um, which I still deeply love. I've got a photo of Plaxico Burris right behind me. But, you know, I think that just knowing that there is no such thing as safe football and knowing how much football can be literally militarized um, toward a particular political agenda and propaganda um, is really difficult to reconcile. I had this conversation with Bob Costas once, and he said to me, I don't think you can be a thinking man and not have increasing antipathy toward football. And I do feel that way. And I still love it and I still watch it, but I do feel that way. Yeah, I get it. Um, I just want to say you have the weirdest internship experience ever i just want to go over this it's like a forest gumpian type of thing you got Listen, man, when you're when you're not in school and you don't know if you have a future you're taking any internship that you yeah, can these get. are good wait so you did um you were a research intern at the innocence project which is which is the brian stevenson group which is amazing that was that. my first ever job and my dad actually now works in criminal justice reform and that's something that like we care deeply oh, about so. i went to the uh have you been to the museum mm-hmm. freaking awesome it's so uh, good. i mean it's Awesome is almost the wrong word because it's just crushing and soul. You're well, immediately- listen, I was 15 when I did that. And and that was my first. First of all, I also didn't come from a family that had a lot of money. So almost every internship I took had to have had to be paid in some way. Um, and we have a lot of conversations in journalism in particular about how one of the reasons that we're so homogeneous in our in our makeup is because in order to get the jobs, you have to take a bunch of unpaid internships and only certain people can afford to do that. So the Innocence Project was a paid internship in New York City, where I lived um, when I was 15 in high school and was also about something that I cared about and was also so formative. We had we we exonerated someone while I was there and he came in and talked to us and I went and visited people in Rikers um, who were who were wrongfully in prison. Um, and it was yeah, for a 15 year old. I mean, I was very lucky that that was my that was my first job, so to yeah. speak. Can we agree that Jess Mercy, the book is a million times better than Jess Mercy, the movie? Yes, okay. absolutely. Very important. <laughs> um, you were you had an internship at the Staten Island Yankees, which is cool. You had an internship at Time for Kids. Mm-hmm. You had an internship at the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. You were 
a sports marketing intern for Nielsen. You, I don't know what associate editor of the writer's network is, but that sounds like it could fit in there. No. Oh, you're on my LinkedIn page now. Yeah. I should probably take that down. Um, that was, oh, literally I was taking any internship that involved writing in any way. So the writer's network was like this, it was, it was basically like you're writing blurbs for sponsored content. Um, and I think they were, I think they were run by IAC. So I was like big media company, whatever, maybe this will lead to other opportunities. The Michael J. Fox foundation thing, I mean, again, communications interns, you're writing press releases. Um, My mom's a scientist and I grew up wanting to be a scientist until I realized I wanted to work in sports when I was in high school. So I do. And I went to a math and science school. I studied a lot of high level science um, into college. So I I did have a background there. um, And Parkinson's is is one of the diseases that my mom works on. So got it. You've had a really uh, interesting background, of course, Huffington Post. Um, when I'm going to ask you a question, I don't know if your life has led you in this direction, but I'm required on this uh, show to always ask everyone this. Have you had an athlete or whoever interview subject? Do you have a moment from your career where someone was particularly pissed off at you? Um, so the first time this happened, I was in college and I was um, I think it was before I was sports editor of the Columbia Spectator. I was the baseball and swimming beat writer. And the Columbia women's swim, if I'm remembering this correctly, the Columbia women's swimming team went into the Ivy League tournament as favorites for either second or first place. And they ended up completely bottoming out. And it was very consistent with how their season had gone with high expectations and low results. And I believe my lead was the only consistent thing in this Columbia women's swimming season has been disappointment. (laughs) And it was, and this was this was eighteen year old me writing that I'm, I wasn't trying to piss anyone off, but that's that was legitimately how I assessed the season, and that was the first time I ever got hate mail from a team. Like every swimmer sent me a a, a message to my uni, and I understand it. Like that sucks, and it's also college. And now looking back on it, like they, they're also women athletes, and probably felt like I was targeting them for that. Um, but I kind of stand by the assessment because it was true. <laughs> And it was harsh, but it was true. Um, I have gotten. Um, Look, if I mean, you don't, if you don't want to get criticized, don't swim at a big time swimming program like Columbia. Period. Well, <laughs> um, I will say that because of the nature of, especially the first few years of my career covering sports business, most of the criticism and most of the angry phone calls I've gotten have been from front offices. So I wrote a piece about how the soft cap um, in the NBA, and this was 2015 before the the latest collective bargaining agreement, um, basically suppressed salaries and suppressed contracts, even for the highest paid people who were who were getting max contracts. And um, I won't name him, but an, an, a, a PR person for for the NBA sent me an email saying salary caps in no way limit player salaries. Direct quote. So either words have meaning or they don't. Yeah. Um, and I, I sent that to my editor and we printed it out and we hung it on our on our wall until I until I left Bloomberg. It was pretty great. Awesome. Um, I got one email. I, uh, there was one time when I wrote about ticketing, a ticketing issue between StubHub and the Yankees and Randy Levine and like the entire Yankees like department had me on the phone. Um, and you like I I felt I could I couldn't see them because it was a phone, but I felt like I was like 
on speakerphone in the Death Star a little bit. <laughs> you could just like feel that intimidating uh, nature there. And then probably the biggest example of this is I'm pretty sure I'm banned from entering the country of Qatar um, because the Qatari foreign ministry, I, I wrote a lot about um, the corruption that led to Qatar getting the World Cup and obviously Russia as well. And then I wrote a lot about the migrant crisis um, and and the basically migrant slave workers um, dying in order to build that stadium in Doha. And the Qatari foreign ministry sent us a cease and desist. And then um, someone from the Qatari foreign ministry started popping up on my LinkedIn, people who have viewed your page. Um, And yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm not allowed to enter Doha anymore. So that's probably the biggest example of that. You know what? I would say that's not the biggest example, because I'm just saying I do have in front of me right now a pretty freaking harsh column by you headlined. Lions fail to meet high expectations May 7, 2007 <laughs> with the with the blistering lead. The Columbia women's swimming and diving team entered the 2006-2007 season with high expectations after finishing third at the Ivy League championships in 2005. Unfortunately, the team was unable to match that achievement at this year's tournament, finishing fifth and capping off an inconsistent season. It's amazing they didn't kick you out of school right there for those crushing, <laughs> crushing and penetrating words against the Columbia women's swimming team. Right. Damn you. <laughs> it's some incisive journalism right that there. That is the yeah. thinnest skin in the history of sports, if they were mad about that. I honestly, I'm pretty sure maybe it got edited after the fact because, but we weren't really purely digital at the time, but I'm pretty sure my, my initial lead was the only consistent part was, was disappointment. But Anyway, yeah. Let me ask you a final, final question. Sure. Okay, so you're a you're still a young journalist. You, you're, you're. Thank you. Know, you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> from an older journalist. Some eighteen year old kid is like, I really want to be a journalist. Blah 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 blah. Should I enter this field? Blah 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 blah. What do you What do you tell these people? Um, we need more, not fewer. We need more journalists. We need more journalists from diverse backgrounds. It really does matter. I would also ask that kid why. Um, why they want to be a journalist. I have a friend who is an adjunct professor. Um, she's a journal. She's a working journalist, but she's also an adjunct professor. And she has noticed in recent years, and I am very much not one of those people who denigrates the youths. Like, I think the youths are absolutely our future and they're going to get us out of this hellhole that we've kind of dug for ourselves and that generations before me have as well. Um, but she has noticed in, in recent years that a lot of her students want to be journalists because they don't really understand what goes into being a journalist. They want to be like Instagram famous and they want to be TikTok stars and they want to be, they want to go viral and they want to be on TV. And that's totally fine. That's, you know, I'm not knocking that being someone's aspirations, but that's not what journalism is. So I I would first say that we, we definitely need, we need you, we need more voices, but also like think about why you actually want to be a journalist because I first certainly did not get into this business to make any kind of money. I didn't expect to and understand how much actual like grunt work and legwork and how unglamorous this job actually is um, at the end of the day. You know, we all have our very highly curated Twitter profiles and, and whatever, but at the, you know, you're spending six hours in the dusty basement of the library of Congress going through, um, you know, records for a, a congressional hearing about the NFL from 1968. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's what journalism is. Um, I will also say as from an advice perspective, 
be multi-platform, be diverse, have some video and audio editing skills under your belt because you never know, you know, like we all like to think that we can do what we singularly wanted to do. And that's just not possible anymore. Um, And get as much advice from as many people as possible. Well, listen, I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate your time. Very much enjoy your work. Yeah. And thank you so much. And your microphone is awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate this a lot. I've been following you for years, honestly. So it was a great honor for me to, to come and chat with you. I want to thank today's guest, Kavitha Davidson, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Kavitha on Twitter at Kavitha Davidson and read her work at The Athletic. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.